Lord God, a local church can go in a number of different directions, directions that are the opposite of where you would direct us to go. There is a danger every year, every week, every day for a local church that it will get off course and decide to go in its own direction, following its own form of wisdom, and choose not to follow your good plan. Lord, it is a temptation for us as a church to do this because we too are sinners who have been redeemed and yet we fight against the sinful flesh. So I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be a congregation that is willing to honor your word, to obey your word, to align our church around your word, Father, that you might be praised and so that we might be truly built up into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The church of God neglects women to its own peril. The Apostle Paul compared the church to a human body which has many members, each with its own vital function and role. And if women were removed from that body, it would be akin to a congregation losing its very heart. For how could God's people long survive without those wise souls who provide it with keen intelligence, patient godliness, gentle service, lofty voices, and a tender care which springs from sober prayer? Where would Timothy the recipient of this letter be without the faith investment made in him by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois? Where would I be without the godly demonstration of my mom, who didn't have much, but who gave me Jesus out of her rich supply? And where would you be, Christian, if the wise women of Christ's church failed to pour into you. Indeed, we neglect women to our own peril. So let me say to our sisters in Christ, as if it needed to be said, you are welcomed here, and you are highly valued here in this local church. What's more, we need you. And if Christ be your king, we yearn for your ministry in this place with these people. We must admit, however, that there is a tension in the local church, a tension heightened even more in this egalitarian age in which we find ourselves. On the one hand, we seek to treasure and honor and elevate women in every way possible, all the more because... Our sisters in Christ have, for so many generations, been devalued by our sexualized culture and our political and economic systems, and even among God's people. And yet, at the same time, we seek to honor the Lord and His Word without any hesitation by recognizing that there are good and significant differences between the two sexes. 
and that God, in his wisdom, has given different roles to men and women, particularly within the institutions of the family and the local church. And this tension demands that we approach passages like ours today with a mixture of meekness and boldness as we seek to demonstrate respect and value for women while also clearly articulating how God has uniquely designed our sisters for a distinct role from their brothers in Christ. My friends, there is a fundamental question that each church must answer for itself. Who decides how we gather? Has this decision been left to us and to our prevailing cultural whims? Or is this decision well above our pay grade in the hands of the all-wise being? I hope and I pray that our answer in this congregation is that God decides how we gather. That God determines how his people are to be structured that God determines how his people are to meet for worship, and that God decides how they are to live in community as the body that bears the name of his precious son, Jesus. In our passage today, we are given two important instructions about the church and its gatherings. The Apostle Paul is still talking about the local church and its gatherings as he continues the authoritative apostolic instruction that he began up in verse 1. He gives two instructions to us from this passage. Number one, when we gather as a church, there is a holy posture we should embrace. And number two, when we gather as a church, there are distinct roles we should respect. Number one this morning, our first instruction is that when we gather as a church, there is a holy posture we should embrace. Look with me at verses 8 through 10 of 1 Timothy 2. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. First of all, we see that praying men should have holy hands. Paul has not ended his instruction on prayer in the corporate gatherings of the church. Rather, he continues here in verse 8 from where he left off in verses 1 through 7. In those verses, he urged that prayer be made for all people, including those government officials who were in high positions over us. And now in, in verse 8, he again affirms that prayer is an important part of the local church gathering. He writes in verse 8 that prayer should be part of the gatherings in every place, meaning every local church, in every town, every city, as they gather for worship. And it's men who are singled out here regarding their prayers in these gatherings. Now, it's not that women are prevented from praying when the church assembles together. After all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul strongly implies that women not only prayed, but were encouraged to pray during worship meetings. 
So I think that's good. And we have women pray here, praise God. Rather, Paul seems to be singling out men here for two reasons. First of all, because select men, as we will soon see, have been given the particular responsibility to lead the church and its gatherings, including its overall prayer ministry. And second, because men are prone to a common besetting sin which can injure a local church's prayer life. Paul commands that men pray by lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The lifting of hands was a common expression for the worship of prayer in the Bible. For instance, in Psalm 63, verse 4, the psalmist says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And when the men of the church approached God by lifting their hands to him in prayer, Paul declares that their hands, in verse 8, were to be holy hands. Figuratively speaking, they were to be hands that sprung up from men who prized righteous living, who aimed for honorable words and actions, and who demonstrated marks of humble, godly character. Men were to be holy when they prayed as the church gathered. And anger and quarreling especially were to be absent from such holy praying men, Paul says. Paul relates here something. He could have talked about a lot of different sins, but he relates here something that we all know if we observe boys and men for very long. Generally speaking, men are especially tempted towards a form of anger and quarreling that causes them to lash out when they don't get their own way, to get so hot under the collar that they will verbally and even physically fight with other people. And as we know, their wrath over unmet desires and their unwillingness to bend in an argument can wreak havoc in their relationships. It can lead to the great harm of other people, even weaker people, and it can certainly cause great injury to a local church. Men who act in confrontation, confrontational ways, who seek to fight and who are willing to pick up the gloves are not the kind of men who should be leading prayer in a local church gathering. It's not that women are never this way, but it's that men are especially prone to this kind of besetting sin. And such relational discord affects their prayer lives, which is why the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, these words. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. When men give in to that evil, confrontational warrior way, especially before their wives, they have put a barrier up between them and God, a barrier that must be repented of, confessed, turned from, that they might embrace a life of holiness and kindness to the woman whom God has given to them. Prayer is affected when men act like jerks. And this is why Paul especially singles out men here in verse 8 to lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Secondly, with regard to this holy posture when God's people gather, godly women should be rightly adorned. As men are to pray with full awareness of their besetting sins and with the aim to live holy lives through the Spirit and not in the weakness of the sinful flesh, so now women are to do likewise with the same aim of lifting up holy hands to God when the church gathers. And the area of concern that Paul particularly addressed with women here was their adornment. The key verb in verses 9 and 10 is the word adorn, which is cosmeo in the original Greek. And it has to do with creating an attractive appearance through forms of decoration. At Christmas time, most of us adorn our homes with beautiful trimmings and seasonal ornaments that fit the occasion and make our houses welcoming and wonderful. And if you dined at a fancy restaurant, you know that how the food is presented is almost important as the food itself because every course is adorned with proper placement upon splendid dishes alongside shiny silverware which rests upon a pretty cloth. Now, I grew up with a mom and a sister. I have a wife and a little girl. And I have also had enough observation time on this earth to declare with some measure of certainty that adornment is something particularly important to women. I'm not saying that it never has importance to men. It does. But generally speaking, it has special importance to women. Not to all women in the same way, but generally speaking, it has special importance to women. And not just in the way they decorate their homes or the way they set their tables, but in the way they adorn their bodies. And though that's a good thing, since it's part of how God designed women to be, like most good things, there's a danger. And Paul addresses this danger by challenging women to exchange their primary focus upon one kind of adornment with another kind altogether. Let's start with the negative in verse 9. The Apostle Paul instructed Pastor Timothy to teach his church that women should not adorn themselves with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. In the first century Greco-Roman world, including the culture in Ephesus where Timothy himself pastored, things really weren't all that different from today. As there was an inordinate amount of time and effort and money being put into the outward appearance of women, especially those who were more well-off and who could afford it. Their motivations were to be ostentatious to garner the attention of others, and probably also to resemble the well-known harlots in that day who often attracted the eyes of men through such bodily decorations. Timothy was to teach his church that such self-exalting, ostentatious displays were out of keeping with the good people of God. Now, if you read the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament... And notice the holy joy of a bride's adornment for her husband. Or if you read the beauty of Queen Esther, who served the Lord faithfully in a pagan land. 
Or if you consider the many New Testament locations which prize the value and splendor of both gold and pearls. Or if you read Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 about the church which is a bride gloriously adorned for the Lord. You will then realize that it's not the braids. It's not the gold, it's not the pearls, and it's not the beauty or the attire in and of themselves that are the problem. Rather, it is the immoderate emphasis upon outward appearance. It's the self-seeking desire to attract the wrong kind of glances. And it's the extravagance of time and energy and money that are better spent on a beauty that does not perish. I don't think... Timothy is being charged to say, stop trying to look beautiful. I do think he's being charged to say, concentrate on a better beauty. And that brings us to the positive in verses 9 and 10. The aim is to be adorned, but it's an altogether different kind of adornment. In verse 9, Paul speaks of respectable apparel. This word respectable, it carries the connotation of being appropriate for winning someone's approval. It is similar to being alluring. So yes, gals, you should adorn yourselves in such a way that attracts attention. Yes, you should adorn yourselves in a way that wins approval. But it's a very different kind of attraction, a very different form of approval that you should be seeking. This word respectable is actually used in chapter 3 as one of the qualifications for being a church elder. So this concept is not just for the gals. This is to win the character approval of those who see you and who are watching you. This is to have a good reputation before others. It is to be respectable. The long and short of it is, you should adorn yourselves with a godliness that attracts people to Jesus. Like a storefront window display. When people look at you, they should be invited and welcomed and persuaded. But the aim of the display is to invite and welcome and persuade people to the very focus of the entire establishment, which is King Jesus himself. Notice how Paul qualifies this respectable apparel in verse 9. He says, with modesty and self-control. Modesty is a behavior, manner, or appearance that's intended to avoid what is indecent before God and before other people. And self-control, in this context, carries a meaning similar to prudence and good judgment. It's the wisdom to discern what is truly good from what is truly bad, and then to choose the good over the bad. It is to have control over one's choices and to honor God with those choices. So, a respectable apparel seeks to avoid what might be considered indecent while it displays wisdom in choice making. As you might have guessed, this is an inner kind of beauty. An inner beauty of the heart and the mind, rather than an external beauty of the body and the face. Peter speaks in this way. He wrote in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, 
do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Be beautiful, he says, but be beautiful in your gentle, quiet spirit that is precious to God. In verse 10, Paul takes what is somewhat obscure and illustrative, and he makes it concrete. A Christian woman's adornment is to be proper, he writes, which is to be fitting or suitable to a woman who professes godliness. In other words, for a woman who professes Jesus as her Savior and Lord, and who verbalizes a desire to honor him with her life, there is a far more important adornment that she should be putting on. Because just as the men are to pray with holy hands, so she, through the same enablement of the Spirit with the Word, is to put on a holy character that resembles more and more as she spends the years of her life, puts on more and more the resemblance of King Jesus himself. This is a beautiful, praiseworthy adornment. As Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Oh, how praiseworthy and gorgeous is a woman who fears the Lord and how much that builds up people with that beauty. And ultimately, this godly adornment is to be displayed through good works. As verse 10 says, with good works. The most attractive thing a woman of God can do is to serve the people of God with her heart and with her hands. So let's apply this first instruction from the apostle about embracing a holy posture in our gatherings. Some of you have never embraced the holy posture of Paul that he commends here because you've never recognized your own unholiness. This passage either means very little to you or you scoff at it as antiquated thinking because you have never encountered the Lord Jesus Christ and his wondrous holiness. You do not see the stunning wonder of his wisdom and his righteousness. But the Apostle Paul, who wrote this actual letter to Timothy, also was a man who once scoffed at the thought of Jesus and his teaching. But in God's grace... Paul, who was a great sinner, encountered Jesus, who was a great sinner, a great savior. And he wrote in the previous chapter, 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He was a man who began to see himself in light of how God saw him, and he began to see himself because of that as a sinner, even the chief or foremost of sinners. And this led him to look upon Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the worst of sinners. So, oh friend, if you're here today, yeah, this passage, it definitely goes against the grain of everything that you hear pretty much outside of these walls. But I tell you, friend, it comes from a wise Savior. A wise Savior who shed his blood to purchase his people that they might be freed from the folly of this world and begin to walk in the wisdom of the God who made this place. So, Friend, follow the path of Paul and Timothy by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ and accepting his wisdom upon your life. Christian men, 
let me say to you that how you treat your body and how you treat your neighbor and how you treat your wife is crucial to the Lord and to this church. Fellas, are your prayers marked by the lifting of holy hands? I exhort you to walk with God and by doing so to put away your combative spirit that you might be men of peace and patience and prayer on behalf of other people. We need you to make Christ-likeness the aim of your life. And Christ-likeness is most clearly perceived in how you treat those around you. To the Christian women, I say, how you adorn yourselves also matters greatly. Sisters in Christ, does your attire say more about you or more about the Savior who bought you? In this hypersexualized age of extravagance, there is great pressure on you to show off by either wearing too little or spending too much or by flaunting what you put on or even what you have underneath. And I cannot even begin to fathom the challenge that you face. But as you walk with God in the hope of his word, sisters, there is strength. And as you walk with him daily, the foremost question you should ask yourself each day when you prepare to dress yourself is, will I look, is, is not, will I look beautiful to others, but will I look honorable to my Lord? That doesn't negate all physical beauty, but you're just transferring one question for another question. Rather than the first question, will I look beautiful to others, being the paramount question that you ask, you replace it with, will it be honorable to my Lord? And when you get that question right, things begin to fall into place. We need you to be beautiful. We need you to be beautiful for us in your character, in your modesty, in your good works, and in your self-control. We need women who show godliness in this church of God. The second instruction that we are given in the word today is that when we gather as a church, there are distinct roles we should respect. Look with me at verses 11 through 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. First of all, the role of church oversight and teaching has been given to qualified men. Lord willing, we're going to see this in detail next week, but look with me over at chapter 3, the first seven verses of chapter 3, where we are given the qualifications of an overseer, which is another title for the church office of pastor or elder. In verse 2 of chapter 3, we see that an overseer must be the husband of one wife. So he is to be a man. 
Moreover, throughout these seven verses, masculine pronouns are included with the verbs relating to us the gender of the ones who are called to this very important church ministry. And if we combine all of this with the rest of the teaching of the New Testament, it becomes very clear that only certain men have been given the task of overseeing the local church through the preaching and the teaching and the shepherding of the church. And understand, this is not even for all men. This is only for qualified men who meet the upright standards of these seven verses, who also have the ability to teach others well, and who have the God-given aspiration to serve the church in this way. So not all men are going to be overseers. In fact, only a small select few will be. Secondly, women are to submissively learn from these qualified men. Now, when some women read verse 11, they camp out in the clause with all submissiveness. And I will not beat around the bush with this. Just as it is the responsibility of all the church, so it is the responsibility of its women to learn from qualified pastors with a submissive spirit. If these men are truly marked by a qualified character, and as they teach the clear and truthful word of God, women should submit to their teaching, and they should not try to undermine or usurp the authority of their local church elders. God has ordained this authority in the local church, and we are all of us wise to honor it. However, don't miss the first part of the verse. Let a woman learn. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this, but dear friends, understand, this first clause in the sentence was pretty countercultural in Paul and Timothy's day when women were usually prevented from study and education. But Paul writes with bold, striking letters here when he states, let a woman learn. Let her study. Let her think. Let her be a fellow recipient. Don't hold her back from the good stuff. Don't keep her from the rich, life-transforming theology of God's Word. When the Bible is opened, let the women come. When the Word of God is taught, let our sisters learn. So gals... Though you may not be an elder, let me challenge you to study like one. Because it's God's aim for you to know your Bible and to let its glorious truth seep down deep into the very marrow of your bones. However, it is not God's aim for women to teach men or to exercise authority over men within the confines of the local church. This means that the office and the function of pastor is received by certain men, it's reserved for certain men, and it is not to women. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now notice what this does not say. This does not say that women should refrain from teaching other women. In fact, the exact opposite of that is true. 
in the other pastoral epistle, Titus chapter 2, Titus says in chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. If you're a woman who can say, I'm somewhat of an older woman, whether that be in years of your life or in maturity in some way, then gals, you're commanded in God's word to start teaching those women who are either younger than you in years or younger than you in maturity. It's commanded of you to teach in the local church, to teach the other gals in the local church. Nor does verse 12 here command that women should refrain from teaching children. Boys and girls. After all, where would Pastor Timothy be if it weren't for the two women in his life who taught him in his early years? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And then he says two chapters later in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you know how Timothy became acquainted with the sacred writings, which made him wise to receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Because his mom, who was named by Eunice, and his grandmother, who was named by Lois, poured into Timothy. Oh, there's a place for gals. There's much work to be done. And verse 12 does not even prevent women from having an encouraging word ministry to other men, particularly in smaller settings. In the book of Acts, chapter 26, there was this Christian preacher who was going around who was able to communicate the gospel well in some respects, but he also was lacking in some important theological areas. His name was Apollos. And it says in Acts 18, verse 26, that he, Apollos, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla, who was the wife, and Aquila, who was the husband, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Oh, the value of women, especially as they work in conjunction with a husband who pour into other people around the church, regardless of sex, with encouraging words, with, with life-transforming thoughts about what God says in his word. Oh, that's a valuable thing in the local church. However, in the context of the local church leadership, the local church structure, the local church gatherings, it is not God's will that women teach or exercise authority over men Rather, they are to remain quiet, which means not that they never speak. We've had gals speak today, and I think that's in keeping with God's word. It does not mean that they, that, they, that they never speak, but it means that they learn with submission, and they are not attempting to seize a role which has not been given to them. Pray, yes. Teach women. Teach children, yes. Encourage men. Absolutely use your voice. But learn in submission and do not attempt to seize a role that has not been given to them. To exercise authority is to assume a posture of independent authority over others. 
It is to hold the mantle of leadership. And in the context of pastoral oversight, it is to become one who faithfully directs the church through the authoritative preaching and teaching of the Bible. This is just simply not a role that God has given to women. Now, this does not relegate women to a place of lesser importance. Not at all, in fact. But it does render them as distinct with a different role. And the reasoning for this is grounded not in just antiquated thinking from a couple of guys from the first century. No, this, this rationale, the reasoning for this, is grounded in God's created order. If you'll notice the beginning of verse 13, you'll see that it begins with the word for, at least if you're using the ESV. In the Greek, it begins with this word for. This is a connecting word used to establish the reasoning for why women are not permitted to teach men within the confines of the local church. And what we find here in verse 13 is the common reason given in the scriptures for why women, well, excuse me, why men are generally given the responsibility of leadership. It says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam and Eve the first man and the first woman are archetypes. Archetypes of the human race. They stand as examples of God's created order and they carry implications for male headship and female submission in certain relationships. Back in the book of Genesis, God reveals his creation priority when he first created the man to rule over his creation and then he created the woman from out of the man in order to help the man. Now, by creation, priori by creation priority, we do not mean that God valued the man more highly than the woman, but only that the man was given the priority of leadership over the woman. I'm going to ask you to look back with me. Hold your hand here in 1 Timothy, but look back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, if you're using a pew Bible, it's going to be page 2. Genesis chapter 2, in your pew Bible, it's page 2. In Genesis 2, the Lord looks at the beautiful garden that he had made, and he recognized that no man was in the garden to tend it and to make it fruitful. Look at verse 8 with me. Genesis 2, verse 8. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he's made this garden, and now he's formed a man, and he's placed him in this garden. But then, God recognized something else. That it was not good for man to be alone. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then look at verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Notice, the woman here was taken out of the man and presented to the man in order to be a helper for the man. So in the created order, God created man for the purpose of caring for his creation. 
And he was even given authority over the creation in Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, by naming the animals of the earth. And he was given authority even over the woman in chapter 3, verse 20, when he names the woman. And the woman was gloriously created from the man in order to be a helper for the man as he made God's creation fruitful. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote in another place, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This creation priority of men in leadership with women in support is established here in Genesis. It can be traced throughout the entirety of the Bible, and it even aligns with the obvious natural order around us when that order is not undermined by a culture that is dead set against God. Friends, this is the good order that God has put in place on the earth. And this is why Paul writes that women should not teach or exercise authority over men within the local church because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And this also helps us to understand Paul's supporting verse. If you'll flip back to 1 Timothy his supporting verse in verse 14 with regard to the fall. Back in 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now people often fail to realize that the first sin, the very first sin, the disobedient act against God where the woman and the man both ate from the forbidden tree, that first sin actually began in the minds and the hearts of our first parents. Adam's first mistake as the head over the entire human race was his failure to take the leadership role he was created to employ when he allowed the woman to face deception and to lead their path towards the sinful fruit. Listen to Genesis 3, verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Notice, Adam did not step in and say, No, my dear wife. The good Lord has commanded us to not partake of this one tree. Let us flee from this wicked serpent. No, what he did was to take his cues from Eve, who was deceived by the snake's words, because he is so very tricky, and then Adam ate. You see, transgression results when man upsets God's created order. Eve transgressed when she was deceived and encouraged her husband to sin with her. Even so, it is sin when husbands fail to step up in their marriages and take humble leadership over their wives. And it is sin when qualified men give up their place of leadership in the local church to women who have been created to provide them with wonderful support. And finally, we come to verse 15, which tells us that women will be saved through childbearing. Now there have been, as you might imagine, several attempts at an explanation of this verse down through church history. It certainly does not mean 
that women are eternally saved, that is justified before God, by means of giving birth to children. Not only would that undermine the very clear biblical doctrine of sola fide, that we are justified before God by faith in Christ Jesus alone, but it would also mean that women without children are without any hope of salvation. No, that's certainly not what verse 15 means. Some assert that this verse refers somewhat cryptically to the birth of Jesus Christ, and that women are saved from their sins through the birth of the child Jesus who came from a woman, Mary, and who would go on to die and save sinners on the cross. And though I appreciate the many who hold that view, I just don't find much support for it in this chapter or in this letter, and it somewhat seems like an explanation that's being forced upon the text. Others conclude that women are saved here not in an eternal sense, but in the sense of personal restoration by having children who go on to faithfully live lives of faith and love and holiness and self-control. But what about those gals who don't have any kids? Do they then lose any value? To me, that conclusion also seems to be lacking. Instead, I think if we stay in the context of this passage, we'll be able to figure out what Paul meant in verse 15. Look at it with me. Verse 15 begins with, Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, Paul has already referenced Eve in Genesis, and I don't think that he has yet stepped away from what happened to Eve with regard to her sin. You believers who have read God's word maybe more than once, do you recall the judgment that God put upon Eve and to all women by extension as a result of her sin? Genesis 3, verse 16 God speaks to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. When a woman gives birth to a child, it is a wonderful thing. But it's also a very painful thing. And that pain is a reminder to us of our sin in the garden and our fallen condition. Whenever a woman experiences the pain of childbirth, it calls to mind the consequences of the fall of our first parents, just as hard, toilsome labor does on a man who works upon the sin-cursed earth, and just as death does to all of us. The pain of childbirth reminds women especially of the consequence of the fall. And I think what Paul means by saved through childbearing here in verse 15 is that a woman can be saved even through the cursed pain of childbirth, a sign of the woman's transgression, when she has a genuine faith in the Savior Jesus, which results in the kind of things like faithfulness and love and holiness and self-control. Women, I think, are being encouraged here to fulfill their role of motherhood, if God allows, even though that role reminds them of the fall and its great consequences, because they can be certain that God will ultimately save them from all of it one day if they show their true faith by the holy life described in the rest of this verse. Having a baby doesn't save you. Girls, you can take comfort in the fact that 
even though childbirth reminds you of the fall of mankind, the fall of women, Jesus can save you even through this curse of sin. So let us be challenged to press into these distinct roles. Man, are you helping to affirm and, and encourage the women of our church as they fulfill their vital function? Brothers, let me encourage you, let me encourage us to praise them when we observe their godly adornment. To elevate women, to honor women, to prize women when they give us an example of godliness that spurs us on towards the Savior Jesus Christ. And it happens all the time. I would start naming names in this room, but I won't because I'll get in trouble because I'll forget somebody. But if you've been around Riverside, you've got names popping into your head right now of some gals who have been strong examples of godliness pointing you to Jesus Christ. Brothers, what are we doing? What are we doing if we're not encouraging them and lifting them up? Let's seek to strengthen them in ways that they might sacrificially serve our Savior and His church. Let us go above and beyond to honor the gals in our lives. And women, I conclude with three noble challenges for you. Number one, learn theology. Don't sit back and leave it to a guy with a title. Get in the Word, consume good books that help you understand the Word and how it fits into all of its parts, and absorb that Word down deep into you, that your soul might be found happy in God and so that you might take that word and invest it in other women and in other children especially who need to have the word. Learn theology. And secondly, I would challenge you to submit to healthy pastoral teaching. If you've got it, and we hope you do and we pray you're going to have it going forward, if you've got healthy pastoral teaching going on, submit to it. Let it be soaking into your mind and heart. Honor it. It is a gift from God. And then third, invest deeply in other women and children and even be great encouragers of, other, of the other men around you. You are needed in this place. And it would be a derelict of our duty if we failed to honor you. So gals, Pour into us. Show us your godliness. Invest in this congregation. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we're so thankful that though we don't always understand, you do. Though we don't always have wisdom, yours is always perfect. Help us to rely upon you, Lord. And help us in that reliance to become the kind of men and the kind of women whom you designed us to be. That, Lord, we would have sharp men who are kind and good to others. Who seek to build each other up, Lord, and seek to pray faithfully, lifting hands of holiness. And give us wisdom and reliance upon you so that our gals might be the kind of gals who display the kind of beauty that comes from the inner heart of joy over Christ and the godliness of life that springs from it. Oh, Lord, help us to honor these gals and, Lord, help us to learn from them. And we pray this in Jesus' name.